You're tuning into the Real Estate Diversification Podcast, hosted by trusted and experienced real estate attorneys who are also seasoned real estate investors themselves. Are you ready to explore unique real estate investing opportunities? Ready to learn about emerging trends and new ideas? Your hosts will help you understand the practical and legal complexities of a myriad of real estate investments so that you can maximize your potential and achieve financial freedom. Now, listen in and get ready to learn. Get ready to learn. Welcome back, Red Podcast Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today as your host for today's episode. Today, I'm going to cover residential investing or single family investing. This is where I got started. This is probably where a lot of you did get started or going to get started. And one of the main reasons is it's it's generally the easiest entry point, lowest barrier to entry. There's a lot of different options depending on where you are in your professional career. There's some options for part-time. There's some options for very low effort. There's some options for scale. There's some options for limited cash or for hard money lending or other private lenders. So if you don't have your own cash, also it's some of these are lower risk options. So probably a good place to start for a lot of folks. Um, so I'm just going to go through a number of different single family investing opportunities for you. And like most real estate there are tax impacts to your decisions here. Some of these are going to have positive tax benefits like business expenses, interest deduction, tax, property tax deduction. Um, you're going to have the opportunity for cost segregation studies on some of these properties. It may not make sense on a small scale project, but you can do a cost segregation study, which basically is you hire an engineer and an accountant, uh, typically a specialized firm that does this. Um, and you hire them to allocate the components of the purchase. So let's say you buy a fourplex, and that's going to be multifamily. But you know you could do this with any real estate. You just need to make sure it makes economic sense for you. Generally, will not make sense for land. We've got to talk about land development in other episodes because you cannot depreciate land. But in a fourplex, for example, you can depreciate the structure typically on a 27 and a half year property uh, or property class life. Um, but that's not really able to be accelerated or bonus depreciation. So typically you want to do a cost segregation study to break out portions, you know, the electric panel, any built-in fixtures, perhaps the carpet, things that can be written off or depreciated more quickly. Ideally in the current tax code, as we're sitting here in 2023, anything that's 15 year class life or less, you can bonus depreciate 80% of it first day first year. Right before January 1, you could do 100%. This is part of the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act. They really added accelerated depreciation and it can make a lot of sense um, through a cost segregation study. So that's the tax impact that can come into play here. We'll talk about some items that are some categories that are not tax efficient, like flipping houses. There's pros and cons to every real estate investment. And flipping houses is not unlike the others in that there's pros and cons. It's just the tax situation is generally worse. It's one of the cons for flipping. You can be, it can be seen as ordinary income as opposed to passive income. And you can be, you know, you got that LLC. We always recommend you don't invest in real estate in your personal name. So if you're investing in, in a, via an LLC, it can be deemed a quote dealer or a flipper, and then you'd get tax ordinary income. And most of the time, ideally, you're flipping properties in less than 365 days, which would be a short-term gain or ordinary income, as opposed to 366 days or longer, and it's a long-term capital gain, which is taxed at a much lower rate. So tax benefits are one of the things, but and then also in real estate, we typically look for at least one of three key benefits. One would be appreciation, you know, value goes up. If you're flipping a house, for example, that's one of the key benefits. It can go up. Another would be cash flow. If you're buying rentals, like long-term rentals, then that's going to be one of the benefits is generally cash flow. And then you've got principal pay down or equity. Any sort of property you hold over time that has an amortizing loan is going to build equity just how fast. A 30-year amortization is going to build equity less quickly than a 20-year amortization. Now, a 30-year amortization is going to have lower payments because you have 30 years to pay back the investment as opposed to only 20. Typically, residential properties will be, will be 30 if you fit in a box, and I'll cover that later. Um, commercial properties often 20 or 25. 
unless you get on you know agency paper which generally be Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac for some of your larger scale generally at least one million dollar loan amount um, of typically a multifamily property an investment property and generally those properties need to fit into a number of other boxes of high quality things of that sort um, so again appreciation cash flow principal pay down you can have all three um, that's fine as well that's ideal right but some of them you know better one versus the other so for example here in Kansas City where I live there's this uh, huge IRS headquarters well, the IRS is your tenant, so it's a massive facility, like three million square feet. The cash flow is probably not that great because it's a really expensive building, but there's a nearly guaranteed tenant in the federal government, and they're paying down the building. So in 15-year lease, for example, if it's a 15-year fully amortizing loan, you got a free building. you got free land. So the third leg of the stool of principal pay down would be really important, like that IRS building. If you've got single-family properties, um, I used to do a lot of single family rentals. Generally, cash flow is named the game. You get some principal pay down, but not that much. And as far as values going up, you can't count on them going up as much as some other investments. They, my houses did happen to go up, but that's pretty much market fluctuation based. Over time, you've increased the rents, you increase the net operating income, and then you do have some appreciation, which would be your first leg. But generally, single family holds, they're going to be your second leg, which is positive cash flow. So what's the, the first leg? On the residential spectrum, it's probably like flips or wholesales would be probably the two main ones. Other examples would be land development. So if you buy a farm, for example, you know, five miles outside of town, you probably don't have much principal pay down and you probably have minimal cash flow, maybe no cash flow, perhaps can't even cover the interest. So you're more speculative and you're going for appreciation. And it's really appreciation. I say appreciation to distinguish from depreciation, make it more clear. But basically when you're buying land, you're going to try to buy by the acre and then sell with a lot. Or if you're really good, sell maybe perhaps retail ground, sell by the foot. So that's where you're really looking for more of the um, increase in sales price. Obviously, you can do all three in the same asset. That's ideal. Some are better than others. Um, so that's kind of just some some basics on how these type of investments can influence your bottom line. And I'm going to go over some of them. So just in general, I think we probably all know what single family investing is. It's where an individual or a group invest in single family properties or residential properties in a number of different ways. Um, some of these same strat strategies and tactics will work on other investments. But today we're covering this as one of our preliminary episodes. I'm going to crunch them down to maybe one or two episodes here so we can get into a lot of the other topics that we're going to cover on the Red Podcast. Um, there's lots of good information out there um, for free on the internet on residential, less so on some of the other categories we're going to cover. So I'm not going to give the, today's not going to be a super deep dive and I'm not, today is not going to be the preeminent authority on any one of these topics. Uh, I do have experience with, I, I believe all of these um, if not, I'll when I go through my notes here, I'll identify if I don't, but I think I've done all of them at least once. And I'll give you a little bit of my color commentary, but also just give you the blocking and tackling of these. So what's a flip? This is pretty obvious, I think. It's when you're gonna buy a house for a short time period. Typically, you, you try to buy at a certain price and then sell it at a higher price, right? What are some of the things you need to consider? Let's say I buy a house for sixty thousand. And, and what's the after repair value? So ideally, it's worth more than 60, right? So you look at comps, you can pull them in the MLS or talk to a realtor, you know the market, know the neighborhood. Maybe the, the repaired houses in that neighborhood are worth 100,000. So you have potential profit of between 160 if you buy it at 60. So you have potential of 40. But realistically, you're never going to make the 40 um, on this because you have to do something to the property and flip. And whether it's a lipstick flip where you just clean it up, change the carpet, change the paint, you spend $6,000 on it and you sell it, or it's a heavy, heavy value add where you're demoing walls, you're re redoing the kitchen, you're replacing a roof, um, you know, other major construction items like uh, foundation repair, upgrading electric, um, or any one of a number of just heavier items. Um, I've done where I've knocked out walls, put in bar islands, we put in columns, take out columns, add bedrooms, take away bedrooms, um, convert an attic, convert a basement um, to add more bedrooms, and then flip. Well, then you, you have that in my example, you got a $40,000 spread. Every time you spend money, it's, it's, it's closer and closer to the, the top number. So you, you're losing potential profit. Other things that 
um, when I got started that I didn't fully recognize um, was the season of the year. I flipped about 10 houses here in the Kansas City region. And the challenge with some of those was I started flipping them in the fall and I got done with them around the first of the year. Well, then it was really cold and people didn't really like to buy houses in January and February. Well, then I had holding costs. Generally, holding costs are a pro for flips because you don't have that much time and you don't hold it for one or two or three years. But if you've got a two or three month flip where you're renovating it, you've got three months of holding costs, property taxes, insurance, utilities, mowing the grass, pushing the snow, mortgage interest. Um, if you have an amortizing loan, principal payments. And if you have a short-term loan, like a hard money loan, you're creeping into, if you have a six-month loan, you're creeping into your timeline where you have a balloon. And a balloon is when you have to pay off the loan at the end of the movie. So you got to be cognizant of how much time you need. And then you also have your selling period. And depending on how you're selling, if you're selling to a buyer that needs a loan, just often the case, you they will need inspection period, appraisal financing period, closing period. So they may need 45 to 60 days. Well, you're holding the property all that time. And then you have the time in between. You got the, you got the renovation time. You got the closing time. And then you got the marketing time. Well, and I did a part, I did a home here in Grandview, Missouri, South Kansas City, and I ended up sitting on that thing for three or four months. Well, that was burning like $1,500 a month of just invisible cost, basically. Um, I wasn't fixing anything anymore. Um, and then if you pay, if you have to pay commissions to a realtor, that comes off the back end. If you have to any closing costs, you know, you've got legal or title work or just a regular um, closing costs like flood insurance certificate, escrow agent. You'll have property tax prorations. So you need to figure that into there. And then um, if there's any credit you have to give to the buyer, let's say they say, I don't like, yeah, I did one house I sold and they said the roof's old. I'm like, I know the roof's old. I didn't fix the roof. They're like, well, we need, it's going to go bad. We want $5,000 off for the roof after inspection. Here's a tip on inspections. Always exclude this uh, of the chimney because I've seen dozens of chimneys. They all seem to fail. Uh, basically, when the, the smoke goes up, the heat gets into the mortar and it like craps out basically. And then carcinogens and such stick in the wall. So they, they want you to put these metal sleeves in them, which are, you know, a couple thousand bucks to go through that. So they always fail. So when I just put in the exclusions, don't, don't, don't include chimney. And then later if they find a problem, I'm like, hey, I already told you that wasn't included. So typically you can mark things as staying, um, you know, staying, but um not not allowed to be uh, criticized in inspection and things that you're taking with it. Like if you're going to take the chandelier, for example, you want to make sure that's uh, in your seller's disclosure and your marketing, at least in your contract, if not your marketing documents. And again, look at your local rules. That's going to be the general, it depends, legal answer with all lawyer questions. Well, what's the local rule say? Um, so ultimately on a flip, you got to factor in all of those types of costs to make sure that at the end of the movie, there's there's what's something left. That's called your profit, all right? So the pros of flips is generally they're, 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 they can be a quick profit. You can do them in three to six months, you get paid. Um, I was flipping houses. I try to make 15,000 or more. Some guys want to make 50,000 more. I was trying to, it was my early in the game. I was trying to make 15 to 20,000 and I made money on every one I did. But I'll tell you at this point, one of the cons to me is it, I don't think it was really worth it because you spend a lot of energy and it's stressful because you worry about, are you going to run out? Are you going to go over budget? Are you going to run out of time? What if you can't find an buyer? So one of the cons is that it it can be risky. And then also a con can be, it can be time consuming, especially if you do it yourself. Now, one of the pros is you have the opportunity to hire it out. Now that obviously probably eats into profit. I was pretty semi-skilled labor. So I could do things like, you know, paint, some basic flooring, um, some basic carpentry, you know, groundskeeping type stuff, changing locks, things like that. But I didn't know how to sheet. I didn't know how to sheetrock and put up stud walls and add rooms. I didn't know how to elevate the roof to put an attic to put knee high walls in to make the attic kind of a double bedroom. I've done that a couple times. Put a double bedroom and a bathroom in there. If you do that, you're supposed to look and see if you need permits. Back when I was doing this, I didn't really know any better. And I don't know what a permit was. Um, or, and, the, and the contractor I hired to do the walls, like, we don't care. Uh, we don't do permits. Now, 
probably were supposed to. Um, sometimes a permit is just a simple fee. Sometimes you need licensed contractors, licensed electricians. Sometimes some cities you can pull your own permits, by the way, um, without being a licensed contractor and it's just pay the fee. Sometimes you got to go through other hoops and build things to code. They want you to upgrade the panel box and the electric system and all these other hidden costs that come with the permit, which is why a lot of people don't do it. But I'm not going to recommend you don't do it. I'm just going to say a lot of people don't. So pros, quick profit. You generally have control over the property. Like it's your property. You own it already, right? You've seen that. We have ultimate control. You can do what you want to. Um, you know, one pro that I got a little bit used to was hiring it out. But then the con is that shrinks down your profit. And a pro is the holding cost compared to a lot of other asset classes are relatively low. Um, but if you get started out, as I was doing, they're still stressful. Um, some of the cons I mentioned, time consuming, um, some risk and in market fluctuations, that's where the risk is. Um, I had one where market kind of got cold or financing changed and people couldn't get loans as easily. And it's like, oh, great. I didn't do anything wrong other than mistime the market. And it's pretty hard to time the market. Um, we're here in 2023 right now and this podcast is launching high interest rate, high inflationary environment, much different than two years ago. There are a lot of people who the last five, 10 years have been just riding steam on a bull market. Well, things have changed quickly. So did anybody see it coming? And we'll see when the music stops, but not that many people saw it coming with perfect wisdom. Um, other thing I mentioned kind of in the preamble here is that, that from a tax standpoint, I'm a big tax guy. I like to do a lot of things that are tax favorable. And you, one of my cheesy jokes I got from a law professor was what's the difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion? Five years in prison. Tax avoidance, good. Tax evasion, bad. You go to jail, right? Flipping homes is not very good at tax avoidance because you get taxes, ordinary income. Another big con of flipping houses is it's hard to scale. You got to have a whole team and a lot of capital partners to do two, three, five, 10 flips at a time. One of my legal clients can do 10 flips at a time. When I was doing flips, I couldn't do 10 at a time. I could do one, maybe two at a time, just from bandwidth and for capital that I had. And then at some point, financeability as well. And the ultimate con that got me out of the game was you have to do it over and over again to make money. So you upgrade, I made 15,000. Well, now what? Panicle Sam, I got to go find another property. It's also a con. You got hard to find the properties. I used to do for buys houses, put them on telephone signs. I'd go put them out on Friday night at dark when all the bureaucrats were sleeping. And then I'd go on Sunday night at dark and take all my signs down when all the bureaucrats were sleeping. So that during the week, they weren't on the poles because if I put them on the poles, somebody would take them down, throw them away. And these were a couple bucks a piece and you go buy a hundred of them at a time. Like, man, this is frustrating. So every weekend we'd have to go do this and put them out, pick them up. Um, but ultimately you get tired. One of my goals is to be a business owner, not a business operator. Business owners get rich. Business operators get tired. Flipping houses is a way to get cash so that you can ideally invest in other income sources. For me, I jumped into lease options subject to and rentals because a rental, I may say, well, I might, might not make 15,000 this year. I might make 500 a month. It's like, yeah, but that's 6,000 a year. And at the end of the year, it's already there for the next year. So that's one of the pros of rentals. You buy, you may buy one that's ready. You might be want to fix it up like you're going to flip it. The Burr method would be you buy it, you rehab it, you rent it, then you refinance it, and then you repeat. Um, that can be a challenge sometimes in financing um, to get that refinance piece. I had, back when I was doing it, a lot of single family rentals, it was hard to get that refinance cash out. So it was more like buy it, rehab it, rent it, save some cash, save some cash. Both for my J-O-B, I had a regular job at the time and I was uh, doing single family rentals. And then I had enough cash. Okay, then repeat when I had enough and I, and, I would, and I would buy his house in the same neighborhood. I had five houses within 100 yards of each other, um, right by my university where I, went to, where I went to school. I really knew that market. I'd been in a lot of houses from like, just going to house parties, just going to friends' places, and then renting houses during school, buying houses, flipping houses. So I really would recommend if you're going to start in single family is pick an area you know. 
and maybe it's not where you live maybe it's, it's it might be where you live but maybe it's where you went to grew up maybe it's where your friends your parents are maybe it's where you went to school or it's just an area you've selected so when i was doing duplexes i selected a neighborhood in my hometown of quincy illinois so i'm going to do duplexes there and then in kansas city i selected another area where i was going to do duplexes where i had lived where i had some friends lived. that was a more affluent duplex area when i was doing single family i said i'm going to pick by my university because i knew that and it was quasi student housing but it wasn't i wasn't resident i wasn't a residence dorm but it was renting nearly primarily to students um and not that i could discriminate and say students only but what i charged so much i rented by the room the single the families didn't come rent it just i'm like i want 500 dollars a room five rooms 2500 they're like what this house rents for 1200 i'm like yeah but it's within two blocks of the university so i could rent to students and then i had security patrol of the university so i could pitch to their parents that hey my house is just as secure as the two on either side of me because the, the you know, they called them Rocco's, the Rockhurst University security crew. So the, the Rocco's didn't not look at my house when they walked, they drove by. And I could pitch it to the kids. I could say, hey, look, the Rocco's don't really have jurisdiction over you. They see a bad guy at night, they're going to stop them. But if they see you on the porch with a beer, eh, they're not going to care or they're not going to do anything. Um, so I kind of tried to play both worlds there of student housing but also single family rentals. So again, pick your market. That's just a general strategy. You know, you, what are the three rules, real estate, location, location, location. Okay. It really applies in this asset class of single family. So the benefits of rental properties would be, I was back to my example of 500 a month. I got 6,000 at the end of the year, I got 6,000 more. And so I could save it up, use it as a down payment and I could scale easier and I do less work because an ongoing rental, once you have it occupied, is typically less onerous than a flip. So I personally am, you know, I do not intend to ever do a flip again. And I know a lot of people that I'm like, oh, how'd you get into multifamily? How'd you get into mobile home parks? They're like, well, I used to flip houses. And then they go, let me guess, you got tired. Yep, you got tired. Now, it's, a, it's good for learning a lot of skills. Um, I like to do my own. I recommend do your own property management, do your own construction management, your own project management at the beginning. So you know how to do it. It'll make you better when you actually own more of an enterprise where you can have other people work with you or for you and you know how to supervise them and you know their job. You don't have to know every technical job. Like I still don't know how to hook up an electric panel. Don't care, right? But I know what it costs. I know, you know, what happens if they don't do it right. Um, I know what, it, what it's like when insurance doesn't cover the upgrade. I know what it's like when the utility company makes you upgrade the pedestal on a mobile home park lot um, or upgrade a panel box. I had, a, I had a, a tree fall on a power line one time, took out the riser on my house, called to get the riser back. And my insurance company said, well, we'll pay for the riser and that work. It's like 800 bucks, but we're not going to pay for the pedestal upgrade and panel upgrade inside. And that's 4,000. What are you talking about? I have insurance. Insurance does not cover the upgrade and the city requires the upgrade to turn the juice back on. So, Self-management um, can be hard, but ultimately it's probably worth it. So the rental, the regular rentals will have more positive cash flow. That's a positive. You still have control. You can probably scale a little easier from a workload. The cons of it's hard to scale from a cash, you know, from a down payment, because you can't reuse the cash as quickly versus a flip. You make 15,000 and you had to say had 20,000 down and you made 15 profit, you now have 35,000. If you're living off that, this is your J-O-B, well, then you're going to need to live off of it. But if you have a regular J-O-B, which is often what a lot of people do when they flip, they start off doing it on the side and you can live on your job. And then this just becomes money to fuel your next investment. That's kind of how I like to do it. Okay. Other things on rentals, you know, positives, you know, it can appreciate. I really like this it's got principal pay down, but cash flow is kind of my favorite. It does have better tax benefits than you can have depreciation. It's really slow depreciation, but you can expense a lot of stuff. Like if you use your cell phone, you can probably expense it. Um, maybe not your whole cell phone bill, maybe not your whole vehicle bill if you're doing single family. But if you're buying shovels and tools and you're using them for rehab, you could probably expense those. Um, so there are opportunities to buy stuff that you can you know, use in your business that is a tax deduction. Um, paying a lawyer to draft a lease, that's a deduction. You know, you can't like buy a TV for your personal house. Like that doesn't count, okay? But steady income, appreciation, principal pay down, tax benefits, control the property. Those are kind of the pros. The cons, there's a risk of vacancy. You know, the con of a flip is risk if you don't sell it in time, risk of going over budget. But the risk of vacancy, if you have one unit, 
and it goes vacant, you are vacant. Versus you have two, one goes vacant, you're half vacant. You have four, one goes vacant, you have three occupied. So I think you get it that some of the benefits we'll see as we continue these episodes on duplexes and fourplexes, et cetera, is there's less vacancy risk, um, or at least less cash flow risk if you do have vacancy. Another con of a rental is you have maintenance costs. When you flip a house, once it's done, if the toilets leak, not your problem. Roof leaks, not your problem. So long as you didn't know about it, not disclose it when you had to. But generally, once it's once you got the money, you're gone. Like you'll never see those people again, never talk to them again. Um, not a lot of repeat business in selling the house to another person. Um, versus rentals, you got to maintain them. Now, when I did single family rentals by university, I had almost no vacancy for years. I think I had them for like six or seven years before I sold them all. Pretty much zero vacancy. And if I bought a house mid-year, I would lease it stupid cheap for like a three-month period. All my leases ran May 15th to May 15th because that's when school got out. And I had people rent them over the summer. I'd let them sublease over the summer. Um, but maintenance costs for pain, legal issues. If you're a landlord, you got a, an ongoing landlord with humans in the, in the, in the residence, you just have legal issues like warranties of habitability. You have legal repair obligations. You're going to have evictions at some point. Um, and my duplexes were more of a blue collar neighborhood. I had evictions in my, uh, single family homes by the university. I never had a single eviction. I rarely had a late payer, but that was because I chose a market that I knew really well. And the university kept jacking the price up. They'd charge whatever, 650 a month for eight months of occupancy. And they'd make two people share a room. I would charge 500 a month and you'd get year round access and you could get your own bedroom. Um, or you could double up and share the cost. And I generally have an, a small add-on for that. Other pains, if you will, of rentals is you could have market fluctuations. Um, I used to, I uh, was going to buy single family rentals in Quincy, Illinois, and buy duplexes there instead, which are more working class. I was going to buy university single family like I was doing in Kansas City by my alma mater, Rockhurst. And I'm glad I didn't. And part of the concern was there was a guy that I used to work painted dorm rooms uh, one summer at Quincy University. So I knew the guy who ran maintenance had rentals. Well, the university had a policy. All freshmen and sophomores must live on campus the first two years until you had 60 credit hours or whatever. And why did they do this? For the college experience. No. So this university could have full dorm rooms and make money. Well, guess what? Enrollment was down. Overnight, the university said, all freshmen, sophomores, and juniors must live on campus. So guess what? If there were a thousand kids per class, all of a sudden there were 250 single family rental houses like that overnight went dark because those students had to live on campus. So when that happened in Quincy, I didn't invest there. And I became very paranoid about that in Kansas City. And I had a friend who was in the Rockhurst admissions department, and I bugged him at least twice a year. What do you guys see on enrollment trends? And I was and I was on the board for a while. What's the of Rockhurst? What's the development plans? And they eventually built out these apartments. They eventually bought a whole city street, demoed them, built more housing, and I I, I got out of the game, probably a little too soon to be honest. I didn't hit it perfectly, but I got out of that game in anticipation of a policy change or construction change that was going to greatly impact the market. And my investment there, I was making very high dollar rent. I would buy these houses for $130,000, $140,000, and I'd rent them for $2,500 a month. So I was 25, 26, and I had five uh, single family rentals for the university right there. And I was cash flowing about $50,000, $60,000 a year just off five rentals. Um, and that was that, some of my paid utilities on. So it was gross rents. It was a little bit of a you know, a little bit of a skewed stat there, but I, I knew I was, if I had to put those for rent, put a sign in the yard, I'd have vacancy and I'd have evictions and I'd, be able to, I'd have to charge considerably less. So I was cognizant of the, mar of the market. So market fluctuations can impact all real estate investments. They can also really impact residential. Another key challenge to rental residentials is financing. And this impacted scaling. This happened to me. I didn't fit in the box. And the box was basically um, the type of loan that a, a local lender, a small bank, or even a national bank like Bank of America, they only would make a loan to you if they could sell that paper down the river as a mortgage-backed security rolled up and collateralized, and they'd sell it to the federal government through Fannie Mae. Well, I found out once I got to four, I was only allowed four single-family mortgages 
on my credit. I didn't have these houses paid off. And generally leverage and positive leverage is one of the benefits of real estate as opposed to buying stocks, for example. If I got 10 grand, I used to have my securities licenses and I sold mutual funds and um, other securities and insurance during graduate school. And I eventually got out of that and sold all my stocks. I didn't really believe in it because I saw the fruits of real estate. I'm like, great, I have $10,000. The market goes up 10%. I, I now have $11,000. And in single family residential, if I have $10,000, generally with 5% down, I can buy a $200,000 house. If I only had $10,000, um, if that house goes up 10%, it's now worth 220. If I sold it, there's obviously cost and all that, but let's say I sold it. It was a spread of 20 grand. I took 10, I made 20, I now have 30. Instead of the stock market, I now have 11. So that leverage was key. Well, then the leverage became a problem for me when I had four rentals because I didn't, I didn't fit in the box. So then what? I had to start getting commercial loans. Well, commercial loans were 20, 25% down, 20 ramorization, and it slowed down the scaling. So I brought on my dad joined me. And then my, and then, then after that, my friend Logan, who's now my CFO of my property management company, because they were able to get the loans. Well, then we got, and then we did some duplexes that were already going to be commercial loans. Well, then I, I ran into the next box, which is 10 houses. But once you had 10 houses, it became much harder to get loans. Even, even if they're all paying, even if they're all on, and they all were, they're all like good loans for the banks. Nobody was in default, nobody missed payments but it became a challenge. So that's a challenge with a lot of residential is that scale. So that's the two main ones, flips and rentals. I personally like rentals better. Before I got into a lot of rentals and when I was looking for cash to fund some of my flips, I did some wholesaling. Wholesaling you can do with zero cash or very low cash. Wholesaling is basically when you tie up a property, you get control or at least temporary control. And then you try to assign it, assign the rights to somebody else. Generally, before you close on the property and you, you know, you just pay a wholesale fee. Now, realtors would not like this because there's, and you're basically practicing realty without a license. That's debatable, but basically you have rights to buy something. So you don't need to own something to make money on it. You just need to control it and control it legally. Generally, if you want to control it and not get cut out, this is one of the cons. You can cut out. You want a non-disclosure agreement or non-circumvention agreement. But the reality is if you're going to sell it down the river to John Smith and John knows you can't close, John might contact your underlying seller. John might wait for you to default and then go talk to the underlying seller. So that's a con of wholesaling. Generally, also another con is you make a limited profit because you got to leave it. If it's if that 100 to 60 example of a flip, if John, my end buyer is a wholesale, the, the end person receiving the wholesale, if he's a home flipper, I got to leave enough room for him to make profit. He's not going to buy it. So generally you make like 5,000, 10,000 on a wholesale on a single family deal. There are not, I do a lot of mobile home park work. You'll hear an episode on that. There are multiple home park deals you can wholesale for 50,000, 100,000, you know, multifamily, bigger, it's a bigger scale investment. Um, another challenge I had was, you know, there's limited inventory and wholesaling. And what I found when I was doing it was I was generally looking at uh, really rough, basically foreclosed properties in the inner city. But the problem was the ones that, I wanted to flip. There was a hundred of them on a street block. So like everybody could get them. So I didn't have any, add any value. So the ones that add value are the diamonds in the rough or the gems, maybe a suburban neighborhood um, with like the one beat up house in the neighborhood. You know, the one that's got the newspaper stacked up, the bushes overgrown. It shows that nobody's really watched it. Maybe they're deceased and the heirs have not watched it. Those deals are hard to find. The limited inventory is a con. You're still subject to market fluctuations. And then if you're going to do a scale, you run reputational risk if you don't close. People are like, oh yeah, I've heard about you guys. You, you tried to buy from my neighbor, you didn't close. Because if you're not the end buyer, the big con is you're waiting on the next guy to have money. I did this a few times and I got out of it because this I was doing this in like 09, oh, and I would have been like 08, 09. Uh, maybe some, maybe I tried a little bit, 08, 09, 10. And the problem was at the time, in order for the next guy to um, get a loan, the bank wanted to see like chain of title and title seasonings. Like I couldn't just close it and flip it quick. And if I wholesaled it, there was a risk he couldn't get a loan. It was always the risk that the seller um, finds out. So it, it ended up being, to me, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. So I did it a couple of times and I was like, man, this is, I'm just going to save up more money, just buy it myself and just spend my, I had a lot of deals that I had under contract that I could, that I had to drop. I couldn't get them moved. So that was a pain. But then you, you hurt your reputation. 
Um, the ultimate con is finding an end buyer. The pros is this low capital requirement. And you make quick profit. There's minimal risk. If you don't find the end buyer, all you risked was your time, maybe $100 earnest money. Um, and it gives you some flexibility that you can, like, yeah, I can just do this on the side. You don't have to like dive in versus like once you own the rental property, like you're kind of pot committed in poker terms. Like you, you're like, now you have to like maintain this thing. So that's wholesaling. Um, other kind of hybrids of some of those would be a rent to own or a lease to own. They're pretty similar. Um, some of the basically a rent to own is, you, you know, you'll you'll own the house and you'll rent it to somebody else for, say, one to three years. And at the end of the term, they have the option to buy it. A lease to own is they pay a non-refundable fee. Let's say they get, hey, pay a 2000 now. And then anytime in the next three years, you're allowed to buy it. The cons is they may not buy it. And then you're you're stuck with the property. Some of the pros you can generally charge more rent um, because they people have the option to buy it, so they're not just throwing the rent away like rent coupons. So you can generally make a little bit more. Um, other pros you probably get a um, you can make a cash flow spread off your mortgage. You make profit like any rental, maybe even more. You generally get a more stable tenant because they're like they're like interested in owning it. So they're probably taking care of it. So maybe less maintenance. Um, the agreements may give you some flexibility. It depends on your state. Could you like offload the maintenance obligation to the tenant? It's probably a little gray. Generally, as a landlord, you have the obligation to maintain the property. So um, you got to look at your state law on that. Um, you know, a con is, you know, at the end, you may make less income because you've already agreed on a price. So if the market changes, you may kind of get stuck. And if you charge an upfront or non-refundable fee, it could be deemed to be seller financing and seller financing typically would be you're supposed to be a mortgage loan originator under the Dodd-Frank Act and SAFE Act. Most people don't know about that. Most people don't do it. But if you're doing one, you're probably not going to get investigated. But if you're doing a thousand of these and you're on billboards, like you need a bank involved if you're going to be financing something. So your the terms of agreement could trigger that. Um and then the same challenges with rentals about scalability and financing are going to be relevant because you own the house, right? So do you fit in the box? Um, more potential legal issues because you got other contracts. Another ver version of this is the sandwich lease option um, and or subject to. I did this several times. There was a woman that was pitching it back when I got started in 08, 09. had done like 100 of these and the market kind of changed. So I didn't really do very many. I think I did two or three. But basically, uh, I what I would do is I'd find somebody... I did one in Lisa, Missouri. This guy had a house. It was worth repaired 180 grand. He owed 170. So I went to him and I said, look, if you, in order to get it sold, you got to fix it up. You got to move out because he was he'd already found a house. You're moving out. So you got holding cost, And then you're going to pay realtor cost, And you got to pay off your note. But by the time you do all those things, you are going to have more in cost than you're than you have in proceeds. So you're upside down because of the commission in particular. So tell you what I'll do. I will take over your mortgage payments. I will purchase your house subject to the existing mortgage. So that left me about a $12,000 spread. And I had a and I said I'm going to give you $1,000 down. I'm going to take your payments. Here's $1,000 going away money. Well, then I had a house that at the end was worth 180 to 100, but really it's like 180 to We kind of agreed on 180. Then I can then lease to own it to somebody else. And to, the benefit of leasing to somebody else was after typically a year of rental payments, the bank can count that as like a refinance, which is um, for them, which means they generally lower down and less credit. So that person, let's say they only have 5% down. They don't have enough money to buy, with bad credit to buy a lot of houses. They needed at the time 20% down. So they can't really buy other people's houses. So the pro of a lease to own and I can maybe perhaps push the price or on a subject to, I bought it at a low price. I was able to sell it at a higher price. So I went to this guy and I said, Hey man, I want 195. He goes, well, it's not really worth 195. I said, it's worth 180, 185. Let's call it 185. It's in good shape. And you're getting, you're going to buy it a year from now. So it's probably worth more. And let's be honest, you can't really buy anywhere else. So like, I had a ton of demand for people wanting to do a rent to own because they didn't have 20% down in good credit. He had five to 10% down in bruised credit. So I'm in the middle. I'm in the sandwich of the middle up in the lease option and the lease option, or in my case, buying subject to and then selling on lease option. So ultimately, at the end, I sold it for 195. I didn't need a realtor because I sold it lease to own. So that was gross. I bought it 
168 plus a thousand, took over the 168. In the meantime, the tenants pay me monthly cash flow. I cleared 1650. I paid the bank 1300. So I cleared 350 a month. I put a thousand down. This guy gave me 5,000 down. I actually gave me 8,000 down, I think, on this example. So I cleared like 7,000 now. I cleared a few hundred bucks a month. And at the end of the movie, he paid the note down a little bit. Everything in between of 195 and 165 was my $30,000 profit. And I had positive cash flow of seven. Now, realistically, I had to spend five or six to get it renovated and ready to turn. And I had one or two months of holding cost. So ultimately, I kind of broke even in the first 60-day period. But I had a reasonable certainty of strong monthly cash flow and a strong buyer to uh, buy me out and leave me with $25,000 or so. Um, worked out pretty well. I did that on a deal in Grandview 20 miles away. And the problem was on that one, at the end of the movie, the con of these, the woman that was in there, she didn't buy. She couldn't buy. She couldn't get her credit improved. She couldn't save up the money. And I know why she made good money. She was on a federal pension, but she had a bunch of kids that were adult kids that she was paying for their tires, paying for their braces, paying for their whatever, unemployment. Um, so then she was always bleeding cash. After a year, I said, I'll give you another year. After two years, I said, I'll give you another year, but I'm going to hold money for you. So then I, she basically like with her paycheck, sent me an extra 500 a month to like build it up. But she, in her case, she never filed tax returns, which I had not thought about that. So when so she couldn't get a loan because she knew tax returns, but she didn't want to file tax returns because she wasn't paying taxes for all these years, somehow, despite still receiving a federal pension. And because of, she didn't want to file or the government take a bunch of her money. So what I ended up making the mistake of is I put a tenant buyer into a home, not vetting that the tenant buyer was not financeable. So lessons learned. So that's some of the cons of a lease option, a subject to, or a rent to own is you may get stuck with the house that you intended to flip. So I kind of quit doing that. And I said, I'm gonna, if I'm going to buy the house, I'm just going to make it a rental. So I had tried some of those other strategies, tried some wholesales, tried some flips. And I said, I'm going to go the rental method. And I, and I really kind of like that. If you want to be in the rental method, but you want to have avoid some of those cons, you could buy turnkey. Turnkey is, you know, you find a guy like me, I go do all the work. I get a tent renovated. I buy the house. I get a tenant in there. And then I sell you the house ready to go. You get monthly cash flow. Down. Obviously the con is you're going to be paying a premium to me. And I don't do this. I'm not pitching myself, but then lots of guys do. One of the other cons is maybe I'm selling you my trash. Selling you a neighbor. I knew a guy that was doing this in a rough neighborhood and people, these out-of-state buyers, California guys like, oh yeah, great. It's cash flow in 300 months. Like, yeah, for now, he's just sticking anybody with a pulse in these houses. They're not going to keep renting. And then, but he'd get out of it and he'd conveniently manage the property and then get a commission every time he'd release it. But a turnkey is basically you take over home that they, they turn the key, give it over to the tenant. Here you go. It's your investment. So very minimal hassles, bro. Immediate income. It's already leased. Reduced risk. It's already been renovated. It's already found a tenant. And it's just a way to diversify your portfolio with something that's more of a simple coupon clipper, lower yield. So that might be good. A lot of people, doctors, lawyers that have busy day jobs, just want to accumulate a lot of property, perhaps to get tax benefits. Um, this is These are probably a good option. The the, the cons, higher costs, so there's limited upside. You have limited control in that you didn't select it and all this, you know, it's, it's yours going forward, but you didn't have a lot of it. And you still have the same risk of market fluctuations. So that's turnkey. Another single family option. This is probably the hardest to get in. I, I almost don't even consider it single family, except it revolves around single family houses and it's billed for rent. And this is basically, um, you're building numerous, typically numerous houses, but at least one house you're building with the sole purpose of renting and keeping it out. I bought a mobile home park from a, a wealthy family in Columbia, Missouri, and they had like 575 houses in the same neighborhood. They owned every single house. They were for rent only. They didn't sell them. They bought up the neighborhood slowly over a few years, and then they just bought land next door, just kept building, kept building. So the pro was they had customization of what mix, floor plan, style. They could have some economies of scale. They own their own construction company. Um, generally, they're newer houses, so there's they're lower maintenance, um, or they're designed in a manner that is designed to be lower maintenance, You know, not as custom, perhaps. Um, 
they can typically get higher rent because there's new and or because it's basically mimicking um, detached apartments. And then there's steady income associated with it. Um, and, and there are, are opportunities to scale. And at some point, these are going to consolidate because institutional investors are going to come in. They'll say, I'll buy 100 of those. And it's going to be more economical for the institutional investor than, say, buying a 100-unit apartment complex. Um, and typically, if you're selling institutional as a single-family person, it's not realistic unless you get to a big number, like 100-plus houses. That's one of the problems with single-family. It's hard to scale. Um, there's a lot, 100 different rooftops, which is why I eventually moved out of single-family and started pursuing multifamily, which led me more into mobile home park. But it was the economies of scale of, you know, in, a, in an eightplex, you got one roof, eight units. In eight single-family houses, you got eight roofs, right? So the thing, the problem with multifamily, which we'll save that some of that for the episode, is because those economies of scale, people want them. They're more competitively priced and generally more sophisticated buyers going after them. But the build-for-rent model, um, the consolidation is a potential pro. The, the cons, it's a lot of upfront cost. This is probably not your first investment. Um, and there's entitlement risks, getting zoning development, permitting approvals, legal issues, you know, and just the upfront costs, like buying massive acreage of land is a challenge. Also, just the construction risk if you're mid-cycle and the market changes. So market fluctuations could really burn you if you're half-built. Um, and then also a con is just probably just limited market for it. Like if you live in a if you live in a small town, you could pick up a single family house fairly easily, um, but you're probably not going to build 60 of them, right? Um, and then just finding the desirable area of land that is approved for this level of zoning. And so BFR, Bill for Rent, is probably the most challenging. So of the single family, there's other asset classes that be more challenging. So quick recap, you know, you got flips, you know, main pro, quick money, main con, you got to do it again and you get tired. Lease options, you can get in generally pretty inexpensively. Um, if you're going to lease it on your own to get into the home on option, if you're going to lease it out, you could generally have a higher back end price and you can make a monthly spread and you probably have a more stable tenant. Rent to own is similar. Um, subject to a con that I didn't mention on subject to is uh, technically it's probably a violation of the seller's loan covenants because there's a due on sale or a due on encumbrance clause. I bought a house. This was in Midtown, Kansas City. I bought it subject to, and the guy's name was Ron. I just took over Ron's payments. And I sent the bank a letter. Dear, it was U.S. Bank. Dear U.S. Bank, uh, I am managing the property for Ron. Please send all mail to me. And they didn't seem to notice that Ron gave me a deed to my LLC. Um, but they could have noticed, and they could have called the loan due. In today's world, where interest rates are 6.5%, if Ron had a 3.5% interest rate, the bank is more likely to call that due. They say, hey, pay us off at 35 and realistically, it wasn't my problem. It was Ron's problem. It was his loan. He was the guarantor on the mortgage. That was a pro for me in the subject too. The hard con on the subject too is convincing Ron to do this. Um, I probably had 50 discussions and I only did this twice, maybe three. And then I ended up, maybe I did three. But it was really hard to convince people to do this because they felt like it was illegal. And it wasn't really illegal, but sometimes it was a violation of their contract for them. It wasn't illegal for us to do it. Um, and... So anyway, that was the, that was one of the risks. So subject two on the example of Ron, I also I placed in, I wanted insurance in my name, um, so I had insurance from Shelter Insurance. Well, Ron had insurance from State Farm. I said, Ron, cancer insurance because I was paying as part of taking over his mortgage. I was paying all the costs, including insurance. Well, I would cancel Ron's insurance as his property ma property manager. The U.S. Bank would re reinstate it. So, I was paying for two. So I ended up, I think I put 15K down. I bought this house for 140,500 and Ron seller financed it another like 50K um, for five years. So there was, took over his loan, whatever that was, 75 grand. Ron, I gave Ron 15 and then uh, he financed the rest, but I was paying double insurance, double yeah, double insurance, not double tax. But I also had this paranoia that what happens if the house burns down? I'm going to file a claim. Well, you, one insurance company is going to say, that was, those guys pay it. And the other insurance company is going to say, those guys pay it. There was no way I was getting two $150,000 checks. So I was worried I was going to get zero. And I was basically uninsured, but I was paying for double policies and I was going to be in a, in a problem. So I went back to Ron and I said, hey, and I, by this time I'd saved up some other money and I think I'd flipped a house or sold a house. And I said, hey, Ron, I owe you whatever it was. 42,000. Will you take 30? 
And he said, I'll take 35 or 38. So I paid him off two years early, canceled their insurance. Then I had only his bank loan, but then I was very low leverage. Well, then I refinanced, took some cash out. So I kind of did a combination of strategies, which is kind of what I've done. You got to duck and dodge a little bit um, as you go through these. But that's subject to recovered rentals, recovered wholesales, turnkeys, bill for rent. Um, again, issues that are important that you don't overlook, location of the property, condition of the property, your financing and your end buyer financing, who, who and how are you going to do the property management? It's really hard to hire third-party property management for single families. That's generally a con. There's not a lot of money in it. So there's not a lot of qualified people doing it. Um, if you're going to be a landlord, you also got to watch out for tenant screening. You got to follow the rules and you got to do it right. Um, market conditions are always going to be important. Um, you got to make sure you got proper insurance, depending on where you are in this life cycle of all these deals, make sure you're properly insured and you have the proper legal setup, whether it's an entity, proper lease, following proper rules, et cetera. If you do all these, play your cards right, you're going to have a tax efficient investment and you have an opportunity for appreciation, cash flow, principal pay down. So single family properties were good to me. Um, I think it's a great place to start. Some people stay there for a long time. Some people stay there forever. Um, I found some of the scalability challenges, financial challenges, and just workload challenges to make it where I was preferred to move into a multifamily um, or others. I love pursuits. I'll talk about some other episodes, uh, self-storage and multifamily and mobile home parks, and then as limited partner um, and so on. But uh, overall, Single family investing has been good to me and I recommend it for you as well. Till next time, thanks, God bless, invest wisely. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Diversification Podcast. Did you enjoy the episode? Visit www.rediversification.com to tune in to more exciting episodes and free information and tools that will help you succeed. Leave us a review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and our other social media channels at the RED Podcast. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Missouri Bar Advertising Disclosure. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.